Hi, I'm Darnell Scott, and this is How I Create. Welcome to This is How We Create, a show that digs deeper into the creative life of contemporary artists of color. Discover what feeds their creativity and how they've found or are finding their artistic voice. Through these intimate and candid conversations, you'll gain insights into the lives of creative professionals of color that are hard to find anywhere else. Hello, it's Martine Severn here. We know that branding is a way to use symbols, colors, and shapes and words to create a deliberate association between a company's or a product's promise. When creatives present their work, we are expected to go beyond just presenting the work. We must also share what we stand for and use the personal to communicate our offerings to help us stand out in a crowd. In my conversation with Darnell Scott, a visual brand manager at Apostrophe Reps, we discussed the subtleties of how creatives can craft a visual brand to create an instant association with our work. Then they'll share some key tips on how to present yourself and your work and to help you stand out. He also shares information on the best ways to show your work online, the best programs to use to create your promos, and how to organize your archives. Enjoy! My name is Martine Severin, and welcome back to This Is How We Create. Today we have Darnell Scott in the guest chair. Darnell was born and raised in central New Jersey. He has traveled across the country chasing his passions, such as photography, the great outdoors, and skateboarding, always searching for the points at which they intersect and overlap. He currently works with artist management powerhouse Apostrophe Reps as the visual brand manager, innovating and elevating the visual identity of the agency and the artist to make a meaningful impact within the photography industry. Welcome to the show, Darnell. Hi, how are you, Martine? Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so pleased to chat with you. (laughs) So the last time we were talking, I was just so wowed about all that you had to share about what a visual brand manager does. And so I thought it would be really fun to have you on to talk about that. And so that our listeners can, so that they could get away with some information in terms of how to improve their own visual brands. So I'd love to start out to hear about you. Can you tell us how you got interested in photography? I started in high school, 10th grade year. It was kind of a fluke, actually. I was in graphic design classes to start, and I used to always make these pamphlets about marine biology and all these things, and I was very deep into marine bio. That's all I wanted to do growing up. That's all I cared about. In my sophomore year of high school, Not only did I have a teacher that really uninspired me in wanting to do marine bio, my classes weren't graphic design that year. They put me in photography. And the one and only time in the four years of high school that I talked to my guidance counselor, they gave me a reason that I don't remember, but I know I didn't like as to why they put me in this photo class. I just remember the first two or three months just not understanding why there's photography classes. To me, it was like, oh, you just take pictures. What's so rough or artistic about that? That was also the same year that I started skateboarding. And as my friends started getting better than me at it, I was looking at magazines and seeing these cool photos of how these skateboarders were just doing magnificent tricks, just doing the most amazing things. And to me, I was like, oh, well, I could 
take advantage of how my friends are getting better and try to start shooting photos. Maybe it'll make this class a little more interesting to me. So that's what kind of got me going into taking it a little more seriously. It's funny when I think back because my teacher used to always say, for a person that doesn't like photography, you're really good in the dark room. And to me, I was like, well, I'm just following the rules <laughs> that you were just telling us we had to do. But after a while of shooting film and taking these pictures and the more I developed them and worked on these photos, I was just seeing, I was falling in love with it. I was just like, oh, I get it. I fully get the idea of like why composition is so important, why we were shooting in black and white all the time. So even the zone system was so important. This is before understanding uh, that post-production existed. So sitting there trying to get my friends to you know, do the tricks again and hoping that the light is right and hoping that I do the lighting, light testing was right. It was, it was me trying to make it perfect without even understanding post-production. From there, it went on. And right after I graduated high school, I didn't go to college. I went right to work um, for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and while I worked there in the law department, I learned about Photoshop and somehow I was able to download Photoshop onto my work computer. So while I was making copies and everything of all the law files that I had to go through, I was teaching myself how to use Photoshop and learning how to post-produce my own photos. And then, you know, I was able to take this job and afford my first digital camera. And that just changed the whole game for me. It just took me to a whole other level of just shooting and understanding these particular avenues that I can go being a photographer. To me, it was just only skateboarding, but then going to New York City and meeting people outside of it and learning there's fashion, there's portraits, there's all of these other different avenues that I could take doing it. I just It just inspired me to learn so much more about it, learning all about the different photographers that just do all these things. And I'm, I'm a sponge for information. So the second that I was able to find these out and find these artists that I really fell in love with, it just took me, it just took me down this amazing path that I'm on now. At what point did you leave Johnson and Johnson and worked with Judy Casey? So Judy Casey is a very well-known artist management agency as well. She's built the careers of so many incredible photographers from Jill Greenberg to Paolo Reversi, which to me, her story is I'm always just like a little kid sitting at like the, the foot of her bed, just listening to her stories. It's always so incredible just hearing how she helped develop these artists. And every, even to this day, just seeing how she represents artists and puts people on and just grows careers of just incredible artists. It's just, it just makes my, it just makes my skin just like chill and excitement just thinking about it. But the, the way I got up to Judy Casey, when I left Johnson & Johnson, I moved to New York City. That was about when I was 21, maybe. And when I first moved to New York, I actually worked for this agency called CPI. Uh, they are a photo syndication and rep agency. They represent Nigel Parry and Melanie Denea. And they syndicated artists from Tom Monroe to Norman Jean Roy. So I, that was my first foray in actually working in the photo industry. And I learned about archiving there. I learned about how syndication works. I learned all the I learned all the business 
aspects of it because you know the talent was already there the drive to shoot photos was already there but i had no idea how any of it worked so a friend of mine was able to get me an internship at cpi and in the middle of that i left and moved to arizona and this is going to be super weird and funny but when i lived in arizona i would watch that show entourage a lot and i was like oh being an agent might be kind of funny and also a better way to learn how to shoot photos so i called this photographer that I used to studio assist with, uh, Torkel Goodnison, and he introduced me to his rep, Judy. So when I moved back to New York, that's kind of how I've gotten involved with Judy Casey. Um, I met with her former partner, the late John Beardsley. It's funny, when I applied to them, I didn't hear from them for months, and he called me, and because I'm from a quote unquote corporate background in my working career, I didn't know how I should show up to the interview. So I came there in a full suit and tie the whole nine. And he just couldn't stop clowning me the whole time. Like, I don't even think he asked me. I think he asked me questions about photography, but he just kept wondering why I was like so stuffy. And he thought I was stuffy. And I thought that would not, I thought that hindered me from getting that experience. And it must have been something, my enthusiasm about photography, the amount of artists that I loved, all of this just my knowledge for a person that didn't go to school for it and just learned it all on my own. It just had them bring me on to their team. And it was one of the greatest experiences that I had. I just, I learned things so fast. I went there in the mindset of learning to be an agent so I could utilize that towards my photo career. Found out that being an agent is one of the hardest things in the world. (laughs) So I, I kind of started shying away from that and judy started noticing how i was very creative i didn't have a design background or anything aside from the graphic design classes from ninth grade so she noticed i was always creating these little things with her art department and just pulling together stuff and learning new software that she was just realizing where my actual strong my strong points were so she was like instead of trying to be a producer and agent you should work on your creativity you're very creative very visual person i don't know why you want to do a lot of the logistical stuff when you can actually create things that stand out so that is what led me to working for judy casey for seven incredible years well can you tell me um why you think that being an agent is a very difficult job i i think just juggling the careers of different personalities was tough but like a story I have is one of my is one of the funniest ones to me, and it was one of the things that I felt like was proof that I wasn't a good agent. Was uh, Judy went on vacation one time, and she wanted me to handle some of the stylists on her roster. And one of her stylists is uh, Bruce Pask, who's uh, the fashion editor of Bergdorf Goodman. But at the time, he was still kind of working for T Magazine and everything. And I'll never forget when my first day doing it, someone called and wanted to put an option on Bruce. And I said, yeah, I'll put him on first option. That was the first big mistake, like second options, just to start off. And I called Bruce and told him, you know, I put him on option because his calendar was open. And I get a call from Judy while she's on vacation. She's like, Darnell, Bruce does not ever want to work with that person it's in his file you need to look at the files and i in my head i was just like oh i didn't know that i should have thought of that first and instead i was thinking like oh his calendar's open and it's a job that pays pretty good money so let's do it and i don't know that that was one of the things that i was 
first mistake was a very crucial one. And that was when it was just like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And it was kind of scary those next few months because she was trying to groom me for this position at first. And I just didn't feel confident because of that one particular incident. And, you know, I think when you have different people's careers in your hands, it, it just puts this pressure on you to perform in ways that I just felt like maybe it wasn't for me. Is this at the point where you became a creative project manager or were you always, did you always have that role? She, this is around the time she did that. One of the, the head of the art department left and she was just really impressed about how much I've grown within the, this is now like two years into being a designer and designing things. So she, she was just impressed of how much I've grown with our treatments, how much I've grown with the promotion stuff that we've done. And this is also around the time when uh, Judy opened the garden party and Lara Beckwith would always just like, would just always inspire me to want to create these things and work with artists that were also multidisciplinary artists. So they were giving me these ideas and I was using the things that they were creating to help me make these designs. So I think after just seeing how I progressed and grew, it gave her this confidence to just be like, hey, you should head the art department. You should be the person that is our, that handles our visuals because you just have this vision that elevates the agency. So you and I uh, kind of have an in in terms of we know what a treatment is and we know what an art department does. Can you break some of those things down for because some of our listeners, they're not in the photography space. They're um, fine artists and so on. I'd love for you to talk about what is a treatment and what is an art department. Yeah. So the the art department itself, think of it as your agency as a store, you guys are selling products, which are the artists you're trying to sell and impress people who want to come and hire the artists. The art department basically handles the storefront. We make sure everything looks great and good and presented well for the clients to want to come and say, you know, wow, you guys are an agency that fits our brand, brand attributes. We love what your artists are making and we want to align with you guys. You want you guys to align with us. So as an art department, that's my, that's my goal. It's just to make everything presented simply, but still keeping a sort of elevated visual outlook on everything. And treatments, treatments are similar to pitches in the sense that you're basically creating this uh, guideline or a booklet to how you're going to approach doing a shoot. A client will have a creative call with you and they'll want to know how are you going to approach the shoot from things from the lighting to the shooting style to who do you have in mind for casting, wardrobe. If you have different elements of the shoot that you have to do, like five different sets that you're going to be doing, you want to tell your client in each on each page how you are going to approach shooting the set. And you are also utilizing examples of images that you've shot previously to hit that point home to let your clients feel comfortable to know that you will be able to get their vision across. And it's treatments have been around for a long time. Directors have always done it to pitch their movies. But I feel like within maybe the past 10 years, it's became 
it's become a necessity in our industry. I remember when it first started becoming a thing, it was like someone would ask for a treatment here and there. Now it's the standard. It's, it's funny to see how it's the standard because it used to just be, oh, this person's photography is great. I think if we tell them the creative, they will hit it, you know, hit it head on. But now I think this between having bids and just seeing who will be able to get the idea as best as they can if they're triple bidding or something, it's become just, it's, it's a standard in our industry to do a treatment. Then one of the reasons why I love treatments is because it really helps to communicate to the client that you know your stuff and that you understand what the, um, what the job is all about and what the brief is. It's also just being able to show them how your work fits with theirs. You know, we, uh, one of the things that I always advocate is when you're making your treatments, obviously stick to your brand identity, stick to your, to your brand attributes. But I always say lead back to the core attributes of your, of the client that you're working with, whether it's through words, whether it's through maybe changing little design elements in your treatment to fit the brand's color palette, maybe even using their type. If you don't have a really solid brand identity. It's just certain ways to show that you and your work aligns with this client and that you understand exactly what it is that they're looking for because they're looking for you to be a problem solver. So this treatment should be able to reflect that. And in terms of what makes an effective treatment, that could be an hour and a half to three hours <laughs> <Right>. discussion <laughs> on like what, how do you make a good treatment? But this is a really great segue in terms of what you do as a visual brand manager. And I suppose that's the nice thing about having an agent. That agent works with you and they're able to see what your brand um, promise is and package it in such a way that they can get you um, the clients that you you want and also find clients that are able to that really want to work with you because you align in so many ways can you talk to us a little bit about in the work that you do now or the work that you did it with judy and the work that you do at apostrophe how do you make sure that that the artists that you rep are being able to be seen by the right clients and that the clients are able to What's the word I'm looking for? Are able to find them? How do you package them so that they can really, so you can keep work coming in for them? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So we are very into these aspects that we do called game plans. And within our game plans, you know, we, we ask, what are your goals? What, what does success look like for you at the end of the next year? All of these things. But one of the one of the things that I think that's most important within this game plan, and I mentioned it a little earlier talking about the treatments, are brand attributes. Um, I think a lot of artists understand what they shoot, how they shoot. They understand the visual aspect of it, but every time you kind of ask an artist what their brand attribute is, it's hard for them to really think it through because of the fact that we're so visual. So to actually sit and put words to it makes it a little tougher because you're, you're going to be a little harder on yourself about it, or you're not going to really feel like maybe you don't fit these and will equal up to the client's brand attributes. So one of the exercises that I always love giving is, you know, who are the bands that brands that you want to align yourself with? 
these brands look at their campaigns, look at the things that they put out. What are these emotions that they evoke that you feel? And write list five or ten, five to ten of these brand attributes that you find from these brands. And then look at your work and list these same five to ten attributes and match them up. Do they align? Are they way off? Are they close? If they are close, but you, if they're far off, but you really want to work with these brands, where are the gaps and the images that you're looking for that you can to do this? So we we go through these exercises to try to basically have them be ruthless editors of their work, have them think a little more intricately about the type of work that they're going to shoot. And from there, <laughs> I work in two different ways. So doing this for an an agency, you're not only the voice of the agency, but you're a voice for about 21 different artists. And each artist has their own voice and approach to the way they do things. So in terms of, let's say, uh, as a package or as a whole, if we're trying to, if we're trying to promote multiple artists, I have a certain brand identity that we have for apostrophe that we're able to package it and have it where it's like, this is who we have as an, this is who we offer and this is who we think would be best for the type of projects that you need. And we have a great business development manager that she has all the clients, the contacts, me and her work closely together to create these pieces and send it out to the right people. When it comes to the artists on their own, like doing their treatments or what have you, I always advocate that they make it more about their personality. Some of them have their own treatments that they had designers design or they made some of them have their own design prowess themselves that they were able to create a lot of them i help with their their treatments and designs and my mind is how are their websites laid out how are their promos laid out how can i merge those together to make a cohesive brand identity for them and using their brand attributes to help make these particular presentations and make them stand out amongst others. I'm, like I said before, I'm a sponge for information. So I do extensive research on brand identity. I, I have websites that just has really great concepts. And I love introducing these concepts and ideas to the artists. And they're, you know, I've never thought of doing that before. I've never thought of presenting my work that way before. And I'm a big fan of immersive experiences. So I try to include those into how apostrophe operates, how we showcase our work, how I would love to show that our work is tangible, even if you're looking at it digitally. That's how I operate, how my brain operates anyway. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking of um, the old, the adage, if you build it, they will come. But I think it's so much more subtle than that and a lot more involved because, it, you know, you can't just create a portfolio and you think, that's it. You play, I've placed my shingle. <laughs> it's, um, there's so much that goes into it. And it sounds like from what you're saying, one of the things that's really important is for you to share your special sauce and share what makes you special and how you align with, with another brand. To that, I wanted to ask if you have any tips that you can share with our audience of artists, um, to help them communicate their, their brands in a much more effective way. Um, yeah, I, I, like it goes back to the thing I said previously is really sit down and, you know, we, we all want to work with so many different people, so many different types of people. We have these goals of just being successful artists, but I think we have certain goals of particular people that we want to really work for. So I, I, I say again, grab those 
brands, those kind of people that you want to align yourself with and just check to see if you guys align. And if you find gaps in your work, definitely go out and shoot it, make it, make the work. The work is out there to be made and the inspiration, it, it surrounds you. If you, if you could find the way to align yourself with the brands that you have there, there is no compromise to who you are as an artist because you know where you want to be. Another tip that I have, and it's going to sound so silly, but it's so important. Whenever you are trying to promote yourself, be forward, but also short about it. A lot of the art directors and art buyers, they are getting bombarded emails constantly. Make it where they are able to know what you're promoting. Have a uh, photo strip of you know some of your best works. Uh, sometimes people include a PDF, but I think having just a strip or a GIF of your photos so it's something they could click on to see your site is just a little more easy. Again, they don't have time to really go through a long-winded email about what you used to do or a cover letter. They're not trying to hire you to work for them. They're trying to hire you to shoot for them. So keep it short and sweet and have a beautiful image to go with it so they could go and check out your site. Um, another great tip I have as well, your website. Make it as less clicks as possible. goes back to them not having time to click through every photo to go see every bell and whistle that you have at your site. Make it where if they go on your site, they have an overview of what you're doing. Make sure you have your categories well presented because if, if you're a lifestyle photographer and all you have are just project names, they are not going to be able to find the work that they quickly need. Make sure you keep your website just concise and easy to navigate for your clients to just see. And you know you don't want to miss out on the work that you may have because you don't have it labeled well or you don't have it there in the front to see. What about categories for websites that you think that are the most, um, that are the best to use? Uh, I mean, the literal, the, the literal ones of what you're trying to shoot, fashion, beauty, lifestyle, active motion or film, um, you know, have us have a section dedicated to your projects. Uh, a lot of us, if you have an agency, a lot of times it gives you a chance to make your website however you want. But for people that don't have agencies, they have to be able to make their website a way that they could sell their work, but they're also artists. So how can you mix the work that you want to get with the stuff that you like to personally shoot? So I even recommend doing a journals page because it gives you a chance to be able to put that stuff up that maybe a client will be inspired. They see all this commercial work, but they'll see your journal and just say, oh, wow, I never thought of doing a concept like that. So it's like your personal work is now being something that's also inspiring. So I, I always suggest categorizing your work on the regular categories that you find on agencies, the style of shooting that people do, and also giving yourself a blog or journal to be able to post that personal work or project section to be able to post that personal work. It's it, one of the things that I hear over and over again is how important personal work is. Mm -hmm. Because uh, from what I understand, a lot of people actually get hired from personal work because everyone's work is usually at one level, but the personal work conveys who you are as a person. And so that may sway people one way or another. Yeah, people are always trying to be inspired and find something new. And I think with a lot of commercial photography, a lot of the concepts could tend to bleed into each other and look really similar. So many brands could have the same similar ideas because they were all looking at the same Instagram photographer or what have you. But 
I feel like I've seen so many personal, I, I've been to so many portfolio reviews where they would see a personal project. They, they would look through a whole book and then they would see a zine that the artist made and they would see a concept in the zine that they were like, wow, I never would have ever considered this approach to something. I'd love to incorporate that in a new campaign idea we're trying to have. I've seen so many different clients be at a standstill trying to figure out what's the next idea that they could present to a, a client and they see something in one of our artists works and it's almost like a light bulb flashing in their head like yes this is it right here this is the the, the idea that we need so i am a big fan of having something that has your personal work you you want to have your portfolio that has the works that you're proud of and the works the projects that you've worked on but i always say a nice zine a nice a nice little extra package of just work that you're proud of to have on the side is so great to present. One of my favorite things I've ever seen, um, I, I met with this artist named Rich Gilligan years ago, and I'll never forget, he came to our portfolio uh, meeting with a box, and when he opened the box, he had loose prints, and on the left side of the box, he had a book project that he worked on. I love the idea because we know like as a portfolio or a book, if you ever have different meetings, you're sitting there moving out all the pages for each meeting that you have. And he made sure that he had these prints loose and organized a certain way based on the type of people he's meeting. So it made it easier for him to move around and work with. And it kind of gave you this fine art tangibility that you were touching this very delicate work while you're looking through the beautiful work that he's making. But then on the side, you get to see this incredible book that he put together and laid out and all his personal work. And in my head, I was just like, I, I would hire you for so many different things because it shows me that you have just this very creative mindset. You have these different layers that I feel like you would just fit best for anything, whether we're looking for active work, whether we're looking for fashion, whether we're looking for portrait, you hit the nail on the head on each single thing. So I, I felt ever since I saw that, I was like, it's important to have the personal projects with you whenever you're going on these reviews, whenever you're doing these virtual Zoom calls now. It's like have some personal stuff there just for them to be able to see, to see what how that you're always creating not only just for work. That's true, um, because we're not always working. And one thing that I really love is the question that sometimes is asked to as an icebreaker. What's one thing about you that I can't tell by just looking at you? And when you ask that as an icebreaker, people tell you really interesting things. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a way to if you're at a portfolio review for people to learn a little bit more about you because portfolio when you're in a meeting, you don't have that much time. Yeah. And you need to grab the person's attention. And if everyone's work is competent and more or less the same, you need to stand out in one way or another. And mm -hmm. so the personal projects are a great way to make sure that you do stand out. Yeah. I feel like if someone asked me what's something uh, that they wouldn't know about me by looking at me, that would be so hard. Because I feel like I, the second you talk to me, I'm just like, blah. <laughs> oh, well, then now I have to ask you, <laughs> what is it? Tell us. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those hard questions. That I, I feel like I talk about a lot of my interests right off the bat when I meet people. It's so funny. I never really go out and engage in people. I always find that people always somehow engage with me. I, I'm a very open person. I have nothing to hide. I have. I, I just like sharing because I feel like 
we as people have so much about us that make us interesting. Kind of, it's almost like I throw something to the wall and hope it sticks. So I'll just talk about anything and everything. I had to choose something that no one could tell about me by looking at me. I would have to probably say that being obsessed with being outdoors and camping. I don't dress or look like the things that I'm interested in. Like skateboarders have a look. Outdoors people have a look. I feel like that there's like a certain way that people look or dress or come off. And I think I always just look like a regular person. <laughs> I, Let's just, I, I mean, that's, but that's the thing, though. We are all basically are regular people. It's our interests are what keeps us interesting or makes us interesting. Leaving art aside, putting that aside for a second, how did you get into camping? It's kind of crazy. So when I was uh, when I was younger, I lived right by a river. Uh, in this town in New Jersey, Piscataway, I lived right, and I would always be out by the river. We we literally would just stay there. Like me and my friends, we would just fish there. We'd hang out there. The first time I ever camped, we were just all hanging out there, and we realized the sun was coming up, and we we had flashlight. We were just doing things like trying to learn how to make a fire and all this. I used to be in Cub Scouts when I was younger, but that stuff never really resonated with me when I was younger. But when I got older, I was like, man, that's one thing I wish I kind of stuck with. Boy Scouts, because this stuff's actually really fun, learning how to make fires, learning how to do all these different elements of things. And then I have a friend who's from four generations of hunters. Like they've never, I think up until him, they've never bought meat from a store. They've always hunted their own meat. And his dad would teach us crazy things like how to make traps or set traps for animals if we ever had to hunt. I just thought like survival, wilderness survival was just such an interesting concept because you know i i know city survival i i grew up in a very rough neck of the woods growing up and then i moved to the suburbs which are nicer but then i would always find myself in new york and with skateboarding you'd always find yourself in these very rough areas sometimes because that's where the best spots were so those particular ways of survival i learned around people what about being in a place like the woods you know if you don't know how to get water if you don't know how to eat or if you don't know how to identify plants or berries like what do you do? You don't want to starve to death and you don't want to eat the wrong thing. So I think those particular things is just what's led up to it and getting deep into the camping, the hiking, backpacking to places that are remote. The other element about it that I really love is that when you go camping, when you go backpacking on earth, there's just so many people, but there's places where there's not one soul there within miles of you so I, I always felt that was just really interesting being a person that grew up in the inner city and always surrounded by people to have a place that feels like your own even though you don't own the land because you're there it feels like it's your land a few weeks ago you went camping do, do mm -hmm. you can you share where you went yeah so me and my best friend always share birthday experience our birthday falls within like five days of each other this year, it's funny, all the years that we've been friends, we've never been camping together once. We came up with this idea to have a bunch of friends camp in the Mojave Desert. I think a few of us have camped before. A lot of people that came there, though, have never camped before. So I knew it was going to be a really interesting experience. This trip in particular was a little different than my normal camping experiences. I tend to go tent camping. And my girlfriend is really into car camping. So I've, I've been going back and forth between that and it's usually just off the radar no electronics nothing just us campfire cooking and just enjoying nature this one was a little more <laughs> like 
Coachella vibes, I guess. Like, we went to the campsite in the Mojave, but a friend of mine brought a projector, and he brought his speaker system, and my girlfriend brought glow sticks and stuff. So it was actually a little more... It was, it was more of a party than the normal experiences that I have doing it, but it was remote. Again, we had the whole place to ourselves. It was just this really beautiful, beautiful space by uh, these boulders. We we're really into rock climbing, so we bouldered a little bit there. It was phenomenal. It was really a great experience, and just like it, it just made 2020 not the worst year ever <laughs> to me anymore. <laughs> Uh, we all need for 2020 to get better (laughs) i I think with with everything that's happened me and my girlfriend were very fortunate to live in california where uh we were able to still be outdoors we were able to kind of because we camped a lot and went hiking a lot during quarantine i i i have so many different avenues of finding trailheads and things like that that aren't trafficked so it was so easy to be able to go to a trailhead and not feel like we were going to run into people or feel like you're not really spreading covid around if that was the case then we would get all the materials that we would need right from the ralphs around the corner from us so we didn't feel like we had to stop at a gas station or stop and get firewood from anywhere else we would have all the things that we need oh well we were thinking about going to glacier Oh, we God. were supposed to go to Glacier this summer, uh, but that's not that's not going to happen. But anywho, <laughs> that, that's what I'm telling you. That is one of the I never in a million years would have thought I would be in love with Wyoming and Montana as much as I was. That that was that road trip between there and Alberta, Canada was one of geographically the most beautiful things I've seen. It, it blows my mind when everyone always wants to travel the world to see these same things, and I'm like, it's really in our backyard. And I hope you get to go to Glacier. I, I, I did the Going to the Sun road, which is about 60 miles across the entire park. And just the views of the mountains and the lakes and the, the glaciers. It's, it's just, I love, I, that's, th- those are my inspirations of everything. It's, I could look at art and all of these things, but I feel like whenever I'm in nature and seeing just these natural features of the earth, it's what drives me to want to be a creator. It sounds crazy and it sounds so abstract, but I feel like it's like, it, it's almost like, you know how we see beauty? Every Beauty is always identified as being symmetrically sound or always, it always has to have a certain aesthetic. But then I look at earth and I'm like, there's nothing symmetrically sound about the landscapes, but yet we classify it as being beautiful. So I, I just always loved that idea that beauty isn't symmetrical. Beauty is something that's created. And the earth just created these phenomenal landscapes please go there you will not be disappointed I will. well i one of the, my favorite classes at university uh that i took was geology mm-hmm. and i had no idea that i would fall in love with geology itself mm-hmm. it gave me such a really great skill actually to be able to no matter where i go to look at my environment and to see what might have been there prior to uh, yeah. humans, to me, um, being on this walking on, on the land. And, and, you know, the U.S. is so diverse in terms of uh, geography itself, um, mm. and I should say geology itself. There are so many different, I mean, in L.A., you have bogs, um, tar pits, you have mountains. And if you look at what's happening in the Midwest in terms of all of the the lakes it's just all so beautiful all the mountain regions and best you have the best of every geological uh event 
happen here. Even even in California, I just found out when I first moved here that there's the same kind of geological structures that you find in Yellowstone, like uh, geothermal activity, volcanic activity, just all within that part, like on the border of Oregon and California. So it's it's or in where we were in the Mojave, there's mountains sized sand dunes that you could just walk up and you feel like you're in the Sahara for about 10 miles. It's, it's, I I can't get enough of it. It's I've, I've been to a lot of other places in the world, outdoors related backpacking mountain, like like hiking mountains. But I, I just feel for some reason it doesn't feel like here, just the, just the diversity and our landscape just it feels like it's something it feels like something so much more magical to me here i might be biased <laughs> well i was watch. have you been to iceland then no that's oh my gosh that's on my bucket list <laughs> it is i gotta a- get over the cold i have to get over the fact that it's cold but it's no not it's not that cold actually if you go Uh-oh. in july or august it's not that cold it's um there are parts of it the northern part of the island it's warm enough that you could take off your your jacket and walk around um, I really love Star Trek and I'm into Star Trek Discovery. And the first two, the first two episodes, they based it in, uh, in Iceland. And I can tell because I've been to those beaches <laughs> and I've driven around there. I'm like, that is so Iceland. It's, uh, it looks like another planet. So I think that's something that you might want to check out. Oh yeah, I fall in love with it. You like, will. From the, pictures, from the pictures I see of it, I'm just always like floored. <laughs> Well, the U.S. is an amazing place, geologically speaking, and so is Iceland. Mm -hmm. But for now, I'd love to go back to talking about um, creating a a visual brand. I wanted to, let's see where my next question is. Hold on a second. Yep. Darnell, when we chatted, I wanted to invite you to the podcast because of selfish reasons. (laughs) (laughs) and that reason was to hear you talk about how to archive and keyword one's work Mm -hmm. and it must be something that you you spend a bit of time doing because i'm assuming that if you're creating treatments or bids for artists and you have to create promos for them you want to have a really good archive of their work and you need to be able to find what you need to find when you need to find it Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about keywords and about how to archive or the importance of archiving yeah uh well so i'm a super visual nerd so i actually have a very photographic memory of people's work so uh, in terms of for what I do at Apostrophe, I, I still archive it based on the categories that they work in. Um, I will do it based on the job, the date that the job was given, and I always put it under cosmetics, still life, beverage, food. Like I'll, I'll still separate each project based on those things, but I, I know where I, – I just look at the work so much that I know where it goes. But in terms of for my personal work – I always recommend to people if they don't have it is to get Adobe Lightroom. They have not only an incredible keywording system, but they have a system that's called collections. And the way that I operate is I always set up things. I guess I could break down my folder ideas for you. So it'll be the first folder, let's say we'll say 2020. When you go into that folder, it'll have the date. So it'll be 2020 slash 11 slash 20 and then when you go in that it will have the project at hand 
when I upload those photos, I will not only keyword it, uh, if it's like a whole project that I shot, if it's different photos, it'll be a little more me being intricate about it and keywording it individually, but I'll keyword them accordingly. And then after it uploads to Lightroom, I'll make a collection. I have a whole bunch of collections based on the type of things that I shoot. So if it's a sunset, I'll throw it in the sunset collection. I'll throw it in a portrait collection. It'll just be all these different elements that I particularly shoot that way. I know that you can make things called smart collections, which I haven't done really on there because I'm just so, I, I need to manually do it myself to make sure it's there. As long as you just have the right keywords for your work, I, I always like to think ahead of what people might ask me for. Do you have any photos of, if you shoot celebrities, you know, have a section not only dedicated to celebrities, but also their names under the celebrity section and also be sure to keyword those particular names. So it's like, uh, when I worked in the syndication aspect, it's like, do you have any photos of Jennifer Lopez? You would be able to go into your archive and you won't even have to sit there and try to find the date that you posted because you remember the job. You just go into the collection that's celebrity, J-Lo, and you'll just be able to find it. Keywording and actually labeling the file name with what the project is are the two most helpful things to you. And once you kind of do those particular things, it just makes your life so much more fluid and easier to find. I've, I've had to help so many people re-archive their work because they just have it like, oh, I just throw it all in a folder and that's that. Or it's just a project name and that's that. And it's like, well, if you work with a certain brand numerous times, how do you know which project that you did with them if you have it all in one folder or if you mm. have it separated in all these different folders? So the collections, I, I definitely recommend anyone that uses Lightroom Google about how to use collections. It will change your life. <laughs> I, once, once that came out, that made my keyword life so much more fluid and i i've never looked back since it's it's easy you could ask me for anything that i may have because i shoot everything it could be like palm trees i will go and find palm trees and i'll have hundreds of photos that's easy to put and i won't even have to throw them in a folder i'll just highlight them all and export it to you it'll be done in five minutes <laughs> i'm curious for the photographers you've worked with and you need to help them keyword their or their whole archive how long does that take because I'm guilty, I have to, like, I, I have a messy system that needs to be cleaned up um, and to be streamlined. So I'm curious about that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, it, takes a, it's, it takes a while. It's a lot of patience. And it's also, again, understanding your work. It, like, if you're shooting things constantly, you understand what your work is. So it's, it's actually sitting down and writing out the core things that you shoot. So if you are... Think of your major categories. Uh, if you shoot lifestyle, fashion, and portraits, you already now have a way to separate the work that you're making based on those things. Sometimes it interlaps, but you could put them in both categories. If you're shooting food and shooting lifestyle and you have a project that kind of categorizes both of them, put them in both. It doesn't hurt to put them in both. You just then go from the elements of each of those shoots. So it's the little things that's within the shoots, groups of people, people, uh, d people, diver diversity, uh, you know, women, uh, plus size, it's just being very intricate about those things. And this is why I think the collections really helps with that because you're able to now 
narrowed down even more intricately outside of your major categories to the type of work that you're shooting. Got it. So you mentioned Lightroom, obviously, as a really great tool to use. Are there any other resources you would recommend to someone starting out and trying to create a visual brand? And I, I mean that in terms of just broadly speaking. Um, I just software in general, like it doesn't, it, not just an archiving only, right? Correct. Yeah, I am the biggest fan of InDesign. Uh, I feel like as a photographer, we think a lot about the photo, but and uh, and we do think about the presentation too. But think of all of your favorite coffee table books. Think of all of your favorite posters and things that you've seen. You'd want to be able to have that resonate the same way. And InDesign is a tool that'll just get it across. Like you could use InDesign to teach you how to. Uh, build a website you could use InDesign to help you make a book you, you, you could have InDesign help you just cheat take your photography and present it in all these magnificent ways that you just never thought could be imaginable for your work it could help you even build your brand identity know what type that you like using with stuff help you build layouts you know if you're trying to even design a zine for yourself you'll it'll just help you learn a lot about layout design because a lot of us shoot for the photography, but we never shoot for the actual layout of a particular publication or way that it's used. Think about if you see a horizontal image, right? A lot of people will sometimes use the rule of thirds and have the subject to the left or the right of the center of the image, but sometimes people will shoot a portrait and someone's face sits in the middle. You now can't use that as a two-page spread because it's cutting right down the middle of someone's face. So these things, you could teach yourself how uh, to lay out these pro your projects so it will be able to be read by your client when you send it in or what have you. Um, I'm also, I, I'm a big fan of just the entire Adobe Creative Suite. I've learned, I taught myself how to use Premiere, uh, which is a video editing application. I taught myself how to use Adobe After Effects, which is kind of like the Photoshop of video. <laughs> Uh, production, but you get a little more uh, use from it using if you want to do titles, if you want to do motion type graphics. Uh, like I said, I'm a very immersive person, so to me, as I know that a photographer, a photographer, a photograph is still, but I love giving a little life to the design or presentation of it too. So it, it almost immerses you into the experience of not just the photography, but the whole experience of who the artist is through this visual presentation. It sounds like uh, the fact that you started out doing graphic design has really influenced everything you've done since. Or perhaps it, it is that you've always been um, very visual to begin with. Yeah, I, it's it's crazy. As a, I guess you, I would be considered a millennial. I was born in 84. It's funny when I talk to friends or look at all these BuzzFeed things and they always do these references to our childhood. And in my head, I'm like, I just grew up on music videos <laughs> like, and Soul Train. Those are the only two things that I ever really cared about, like cartoons or whatever, TV shows or whatever. But it was something about uh, how MTV presented music videos, concepts, the light. It, it marred the two things that I loved the most, music and visuals. And it 
it kind of had me just go and see how records were laid out. I'm, um, I'm from a musical background, so a lot of my family members, they were producers, and they would have just crates and crates and crates of music. And I just remember all the album covers. Like, I, that's how I used to find the music that I love. It's like I would just base it off the album cover that I picked up. <laughs> you know, so I, I feel like these things were kind of already in the back of my mind. And even when I was kind of put in the position to be a graphic designer, I didn't know that there were rules to follow about it. It was kind of just taking my intuition and the idea of wanting to be able to convey a message and put it together without it being cheesy. (laughs) (laughs) Music videos have really influenced me as well. And so much so that now whenever I am creating a concept for um, a test shoot, I always think about it in terms of a a music video. video. (laughs) There was this point in time where they kind of stopped and I was just really like sad. And this is before YouTube was able to start just collecting tons of music videos. And I was just really sad that you weren't really seeing people really invest in music videos anymore. And now that they're making a extreme comeback, just seeing th- the concepts that people have. And it doesn't look like they were just inspired by old Hype Williams videos or Kevin Curse like videos. They're their own entity and imagination. And I, I just, I love it. It's to me, music videos are the will always be the most inspiring thing to me it's i can't get enough of it i i wish i was better as a cinematographer because i would love to make a music video one day just i've I've seen every hype williams music video ever and like from missy elliott to buster ron's videos you're just like oh my god that's so genius (laughs) well that's something to talk about you know people who actually are the DPs, I guess, who come up with these concepts, especially if you think about Missy Elliott's videos. They're just so crazy and they're so good. Yeah, the, the concepts are always there. And I, I, I would pay some of the mood boards. I, I just can't imagine seeing some of these mood boards and just being like, yo, this is going to be it. <laughs> I love the act of creating. And I'm so curious about how people come up with these ideas and... There's this series on um, Netflix, and it used to be a podcast, but now it's on. It's now on Netflix, and they talk about how a song is created. Have you seen it? I forget what it's called. Oh, the, the title. I, I know what you're talking about. I just seen. Uh, it, it actually just came across my radar yesterday, and I, I definitely want to see it because I saw that there, there were a few songs on there that I was like, "Oh man, I love that song." I want to see how like what were the inner workings of what made that. But I, I do want to check that out. Since we've talked so much about camping, I now want to know where are your favorite places to go? Um, I love Big Sur, California. Um, that place has a special place in my heart, always. <laughs> it's just so incredible. And it's a lot of bluffs. I have a secret spot that's kind of off the beaten path. But it's it's just so ideal to be. And you have your own secluded area and then through the brush you just have this vast view of the mountains so i i love big sur i really i love the mojave desert i thought that was a really great spot that we went to another place that i would definitely tell people to go check out is the uh galatin galatin national forest in montana i feel like it may not necessarily have these crazy elements that we're used to seeing like 
mountains or a swimming hole, I'm, I'm a really easy person when it comes to being outdoors. So even if it's just tons of just incredible trees, I'm going to be obsessed with it. It's, it's more of the feeling of being there than all of the Instagrammable things to photograph there. There's a lot of places that I've been to that could have been photographable, but it didn't really matter to me that much. <laughs> like I was just in the moment. Those are my three top favorite places. And it's, it's going to sound weird also, but Harriman State Park in New York is another good place. I don't know if it's actually legal to camp there, but I've done it a lot of times and it's pretty awesome. <laughs> How do you spell that? The... Harriman is yeah. uh, H-A-R-R-I-M-A-N. Okay, State Park. All right. I'll include all of this in the show notes that way in case someone wants to start camping or go camping again uh, they'll have these to refer to the last thing i want to talk about is failure Uh so we always talk about all of the positive things that have happened in our lives but sometimes when we fail we fail big or Uh the failure often teaches us really valuable lessons. And I'd love to hear from you if you could give us, uh, tell us a little bit about a time where things haven't gone the way that you expected it to go and what ensued after that. Right off the top of my head, my mind always goes back to this point in my life. Kind of around the time when I was assisting for the photographer, Torkel Goodnison, I wasn't working. like, Like I wasn't shooting enough the way I wanted to because I was just focused on that aspect of my life and I think I was also falling out of love with living in New York City and I I was just kind of in this weird place so a friend of mine convinced me to move to Arizona Um, so I went out there Uh, a long story short that person wound up actually having me come out there under false pretenses and I was almost stuck out there. I had one of my, one of this, a person that I now consider a best friend just steered me in the right direction. And, um, it it was great being there. And I felt like, you know, I I learned a lot of being on my own, being far away from home and all of these different things. But I think financially and artistically, it, it, it wasn't anything that I feel like actually elevated me. I, I think my camera broke right before I moved to Arizona. So, I was now out in Arizona without a digital camera. I wanted to shoot film, but the job that I, I had out there shooting at a portrait studio wasn't giving me the hours enough to be able to be barely pay rent. Like luckily rent was cheap there. So I was trying to go out and shoot skate photos and they weren't paying me. <laughs> so they would only give me product. So I would actually have to go and sell skateboards and t-shirts at a skate park to help myself pay for bus fare home or pay for rent. And just that year being out there and because I didn't want to admit that it was a failure to me, I wouldn't tell my mom or tell anyone that I was in the situation. I was just like, yo, it's fine. Everything's fine. Where in my head, I'm like, dude, you're literally spiraling out of control in the situation that you're in. It it took my grandfather passing away and my mom having me wanting me to come back home to kind of be there for that to make me feel like, okay, this was kind of your way to be able to cut your losses and not let it get worse. (laughs) I just felt socially and experience-wise, Arizona was a really great experience. Just artistically, financially, it kind of felt like it was just not a great 
idea to do that on such a whim. It, it was one of those things that kind of ended my spontaneity. I used to be a very spontaneous person. And that was one of those things where it's like, okay, from here on out, you need to think things through. And I think it probably led to a lot of issues that I have with perfection, not being able to really just let things go until it's to my satisfactory. Because <laughs> in fear of that failure, I, I personally don't think I handle handle failure the best. Like I won't just break down and uh, not do anything anymore. But I think I beat myself up a lot when I don't accomplish the things that I had set in stone for myself. And I felt like that was one of the biggest, the biggest moments of failure that I think I had. And you haven't forgiven yourself for that? I, I don't think so. Because <laughs> like, I, like I said, the second you asked me, I was able to answer that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things I'm like, I'm sure I've had a lot of different things that I feel like I've failed at, but I'm, I'm very good at just rolling with the punches. Like, it'll be like two days where I'm just like, man, you're the worst. Like you really blew that. But after a while, it's just like, Darnell, like you won't grow being that way. But for some reason, that particular moment of my life just made me feel really irresponsible. It made me feel like I trusted people too much. It didn't make me feel like I was very smart in the decisions that I made to do that. I chose just being spontaneous over actually doing something that will elevate or uplift me. When I go back on that, I just always feel like that was a dub. (laughs) Uh, Well, how old were you then? This is when I was 23 or 24, maybe. Mm. Have you ever taken yourself to tea? Have you have you heard of that? Where if you're having a particularly difficult time with yourself, to take yourself to tea. I have a friend who does this with some of her clients where she asks them, she's a, an executive coach, and she asks them to take themselves, um, get a cup of tea and sit down with your journal and just journal it out and ask yourself these questions and kind of try to split your mind a little bit in terms of yourself, I should say. So Mm -hmm. you say, you know, why did you do this or that? And then let the answers come. And it's Mm. really, it's an interesting, I've done it a few times. And it's interesting only because there have been times as well where I've been really hard on myself. And then I think back to how young I was. (laughs) 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 And I think uh, I was such a baby. Like I was just a child. What I have to, I didn't know better. So... Yeah. Um, yes. One of my artists, uh, Anise Wade of Anise and Dax, she's very into uh, self-reflection. And she put me onto this really great book called The Artist's Way. It's just a bunch of exercises to help you find your inner creative self. The whole premise of the book is to let everyone know whether you're a lawyer or a writer or anything. Everyone has a spark of creativity in them. It just takes certain elements and certain exercises for you to find that within yourself. So one of the particular avenues that you're supposed to do in this book is called morning pages. And every morning when you first wake up, the first thing you do, you don't even drink coffee. You don't Maybe you go to the bathroom, that's about it. You sit and you write just the first four, uh, three pages of things that come to mind. So I, I've, I've been exercising that for the past year. It, it, I never really go back in time about other things that I dealt with because those were just there. And I was able to 
rectify situations and make it to where I am today. But there, I, I, it started off with me writing a lot of issues, like self issues, which she, which the artist says you're going to do. You're going to attack yourself, bring yourself down, talk about the things that you're not doing. But then as you're writing these three pages, you also are writing ideas that you have, things that you want to do, ways that you see the world. And she advises for the first like four weeks that you never look at those pages because it, you just want to get it out of your system. And then as you're going and you look back at the things that you were saying about yourself and you equate them to where you are now, you see that like what you were aware of, what you weren't aware of, the things that you are aware of, how can you problem solve these issues. I, I learned through the morning pages that a lot of life is based on problem solving. Everything that occurs to you is going to be a problem and your soul as a human being is to solve it so you can move on to the next task, to move on to the next part or chapter of your life. And I see everything that occurs to me now as these things. So I, I, I have such a logical way of approaching what I do. And I think the writing that I have been doing has been helping me be less down on who I am as a person. I, I don't self-reflect much because of this particular exercise. It helps me have that hour or so that I do these exercises to self-reflect and understand who I am. I'm so action-oriented and I'm so just immersed into the things that I do and just always trying to just push forward good vibes that I never actually pay attention to my vibes. So it, that's one of the things in the past year that I've been working on for myself to love and appreciate myself and not only hold myself accountable, but also understand that I'm human and I'm not always going to be a perfect person. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate the fact that you came on and chatted um, and shared so many really great and actionable tips that people can use to not only shine up their their own brands, but also um, figure out where to go camping and, and go back and, and love the outdoors more, as well as creating, uh, looking at their archives and keywording it and making sure that everything is easily accessible. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing you. I'm so pleased oh, we you. had a chance to talk. It's, it's nice to have like uh, very engaging questions as well. I feel, I feel like it kind of helps also identify a little bit more about who you are as a person. Like we, we act, like I was saying earlier, I act a lot on things and I do things out of response to what's kind of given to me and I never get a chance to like really reflect or think back on it. So it's always nice to be able to have to sit and actually think of your methods or things that work or things that you were able to just kind of facilitate for yourself. I'm like 36 years old and I'm just like, oh wow, I actually have done things that led me to this great place that I'm in now that I should be proud of. So thank you for sparking that. <laughs> thank you. 